Well, here's how I'd like to begin this morning. I want you to think about the different, uh, different men and women in the Bible and think to yourself, think in your mind, boy, if there was something that I could experience that, that somebody in the Bible experienced, you know, kind of see what they saw, experience what they experienced, what would that be? Just kind of think to yourself, right? One or two or three, however many you might come up with. Boy, I would love to see what they saw go through what they went through. Just think about that in your mind real quick. You know, when I, when I think about that for myself, to have been Moses, I mean, to, to hear God speak in the burning bush, boy, that would have been something. Or see the, red, see the Red Sea part in front of you. Man, that would have been quite the experience. I think about David, <laughs> to drop a giant with a stone and a sling. That would have been something. Uh, Joseph, Daniel, to, to be given the interpretation to dreams. I mean, that would have been, would have been quite something. I think about Mary, to be the mother of the Son of God becoming human. Or, or to Peter. I mean, I know Jesus walked on the water. Peter walked on the water just for a little bit, right? But, but he still walked on the water. Man, to, to have experienced something like that. Maybe there's others that come to mind for you. If we were to write down a list, like these are the top five characters that I would just, I'd love to experience what they experienced. My hunch is not many of us would include the Old Testament prophets. Anybody have any of those in your mind? I mean, maybe, maybe Elijah or Elisha because of the miracles, right? Or maybe Daniel because of the whole living through the lion's den, that would have been something to experience. But, but probably not Jeremiah or Joel or Hosea, right? I'm Ezekiel. I mean, they, they, they had to deliver to God's people difficult, unpleasant messages regarding God's judgment. And after all, those guys were sometimes mistreated by their own people, due to the messages they spoke. So, so for as great as it must have been for the prophets to be receiving these messages directly from God, that pleasure was probably tempered a bit by the content of those messages that they were tasked with delivering to the people who were living in rebellion of God. And so today we come to the book of Micah. One of those guys, one of those Old Testament prophets. We're going to be starting a new sermon series today in the book of Micah. Uh, we're going to be spending six weeks studying the messages that God gave to Micah that he was to deliver to God's people and, and really to all people on earth. Now, now, when I preach through a book, when you study through a book, typically the way we do it is we start at the beginning and we work our way through it, right, and go to the end. It's just kind of the natural way a book or a letter is meant to be read. It's meant to be studied, meant to be preached. With Micah, we're going to do something a little bit different. The, the book of Micah is seven chapters long, and it consists of three 
three oracles, three messages given to God's people. And those three messages are statements of judgment, which are then followed by, ended with statements of hope. Okay, so, so if I were to take those three oracles and, and preach them as three sermons, I mean, it could work, but, but I feel like we would be going through it so fast, there'd be lots of things left un, unexamined, undiscussed. I could, could do like a chapter a week and break it up into seven weeks, but then, for example, chapter one, it'd be all judgment. I mean, you don't really get to the hope until the end of chapter two, because chapter one and two is all one message. So, so that really wouldn't be the ideal way to do it either. So, so, so what we're going to do is today we're going to talk about the setting. We're going to talk about the background to the book of Micah, the whole book. We're going to kind of get an overview today of the whole book, all three of those oracles. And we're going to hopefully do so in a way that kind of helps us understand the basic message that God is giving to his people, both in terms of judgment and hope. And then for the next five weeks after this morning, we're going to look at five different themes that come up again and again in these three messages. So we're going to study the entire book, but, but we'll do so more thematically than progressively working through it. So, so with that being said, we're, we're, I want to start today by giving, giving context, the context in which Micah gave these three oracles. If we, if we look at the, the historical, the religious setting of the book, I think it's beneficial to us because in understanding more deeply the reason these oracles were given and the way in which they would have been received, it helps us to examine our own context today to see where there might be parallels to our own time. Helps us to consider how these words ought to be applied in our own context so, so if we jump into the historical context, the, the, the history of things, if we, if we, let's, let's start at roughly 1000 BC. This would have been when King David was reigning over Israel. He reigned for 40 years, and then he was followed by his son, Solomon, who reigned for another 40 years. And it was after the reign of Solomon that, that the nation experienced some, some major tension. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was set to reign as king after his father, like normally is done. But he was opposed by a royal official named Jeroboam. So we've got Rehoboam, son of Solomon, Jeroboam, a royal official. Jeroboam wanted to be king, and he sought to do so by securing the loyalties of the people. He undermined the, the current reign, and he succeeded in convincing the northern 10 tribes of Israel. Remember, there were 12 tribes in Israel. He convinced the northern 10 tribes to follow him, to proclaim that he was king. And, and so as a result of that, the nation of Israel was split into two. The northern nation of 10 tribes kept the name Israel, northern Israel, as I'll probably refer to it quite a bit. And the southern two tribes, the southern portion was called Judah, because Judah was one of those two tribes. It was the bigger one. So you had northern Israel and southern Judah. Now, it's important to know that Jerusalem was in southern Judah. 
Jerusalem, that was where the, the temple was built. That was, that was where the people of God were commanded to go to offer sacrifices, to participate in the three yearly feasts. Now, Jeroboam, as we might expect, he wasn't too fond with all the people in his area, northern Israel, having to go to Jerusalem to do those things. He, he, he was afraid that the people's loyalties would be fragile, that, that they would shift to Rehoboam in the south. And so as a result of that, he said, well, I'm going to make places here in northern Israel where people can go worship. So he set up two golden, uh, two golden calves in two cities, one at the very top of that part of Israel, one at the very bottom. You had Dan in the north, you had Bethel in the south. And he told the people, you, you can go there. You can go there to worship God. And he even, he even uh, appointed priests to serve at those sites. They weren't Levitical priests like they were supposed to be in Jerusalem, but, but he set up a priesthood to, to serve at those two places. So that's all taken place around 930 B.C. From that point forward, the, the nation of northern Israel moved farther and farther away from faithful worship to God. And the kings of northern Israel were notorious for leading the people in this journey away from God. Now, the southern nation of Judah, they, they, they had their own problems, but they periodically had, had kings who would bring the people back to God. They had some good kings. The northern nation never had that, but the southern nation had some good kings that, that we'll, we'll say, slowed the drift in southern Judah. So, so the, the north and the south, they were both in religious decline. The north faster than the south, but they were both declining religiously, moving away from God. They did experience, however, a, a time of economic prosperity. It was generally prosperous during this time. By the time we get to Micah and his messages, we're going to see that that economic prosperity had led to some different forms of evil. Economic comfort and prosperity is not necessarily an outcome of obedience and devotion to God. And we're going to see that come up. Now, politically during this time, both northern Israel and southern Judah, they both faced threats from nations surrounding them. Uh, uh, Syria was one of those nations. Aram was another nation. And so they quite often responded by making alliances. Sometimes they would make an alliance with the nation that was oppressing them. Sometimes they would go to another nation and say, hey, let's join forces together and fight against this nation. But, but they, they both north and the south sought to make alliances in that way. And as all that was going on, there was this, this nation called Assyria that was gaining power. It was gaining influence in the world. And by the mid-700s B.C., they were making their way into the region of Israel, both northern Israel and southern Judah. So you have Assyria becoming really a world superpower at this time. And it's during those days that Micah speaks his three oracles. So I would encourage you to, to turn with me and open to the book of Micah. We're on page 776 in the Pew Bibles. And we're just going to read chapter 1, verse 1, and kind of get the, get, the dates and, uh, get the dates for these messages. 
It says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. And Samaria is the capital of northern Israel. Jerusalem is the capital of southern Judah. So he's talking about both there, messages to both. So, so there's not numbers, there's not a, a date given by numbers in that verse, but, but we're told it was during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Those were three southern kings, kings in southern Judah. So that puts it about 750 to 698 BC. That's when Micah gave these prophecies. And during that time, there was this succession of four different Assyrian kings who each made, each made their way deeper and deeper into northern Israel and southern Judah. It's also during this time that some of the prophets like Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, they were all contemporaries of Micah. They lived at the same time. They were ministering at the same time. So they're all speaking in that context. Micah, along with those other prophets, they were, they were warning God's people that due to their rejection of God in various ways, the Assyrians were coming to bring judgment. So the kings of Assyria, no doubt, had their own plans regarding world conquest and economic gain and all of that, but but God was clear through his prophets that the Assyrians were his agents sent to enact his judgment on his people. And the reasons for that judgment are going to be some of the themes that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks. So Micah brings up the idolatry that was seen, especially in northern Israel. It shouldn't be a surprise, probably, since Jeroboam set up those two golden calves all those years ago. You shouldn't be surprised that idolatry was a big issue. Micah is also going to talk about the failures of the leaders. He's, he's going to talk about the failure of all the people to, to care for the poor and the oppressed. So even though the Israelites were God's chosen people with whom he had made a covenant and to whom he had given the promised land, they were not being obedient to him. They were not devoted to him. They were, they were serving themselves. They were sacrificing to idols instead of worshiping God. And so as a result of all of this, God sent messages of warning through his prophets. And the thrust of those messages was to warn God's people what would happen if they continued down that current path. The warnings foretold what would happen if they didn't repent of their sinful idolatry, didn't repent of their disobedience, and turn back to God. And so implicit in those messages of warning is the potential that the people could still change their ways and avoid the judgment that was foretold. There was yet hope for God's people if, if they would heed the messages and repent. We see that in the messages of the prophets, except for Micah. The message, the prophetic messages which Micah gave were not like that. His messages don't contain admonitions for the people to change their ways in order to avoid judgment. It's really interesting in that way. 
You don't find one in the, in the whole book. There's no, no calls to repent and turn back to God. Instead, Micah prophesies about what is certain to happen. He says, the judgment has been set. Assyria is coming. And as I said, the book of Micah is, is often divided into three parts, three messages, oracles. Chapters 1 and 2 contain the first one. Chapters 3, 4, and 5, the second one. 6 and 7, the third one. And, and you, can note, uh, you can note in your Bible that each oracle begins with the command to hear. So you see that at the beginning of chapter 1, 3, and 6, this, this command to hear what is going to be said. And in all three our oracles, immediately after telling the people to hear, Micah delivers God's words regarding their sinful ways. So chapter 1 especially focuses on the sin of idolatry. Chapter 3 especially focuses on the sins of the leaders. Chapter 6 especially focuses on the sin of failing to care for the poor and the oppressed. Because of those sins... Assyria would and did come, bringing God's judgment with them. In 722 BC, the northern nation of Israel, and specifically the capital city of Samaria, fell to the Assyrians. The people were exiled to Assyria, foreigners were brought in to live in the land, the northern kingdom fell. And then later in 701, the southern kingdom of Judah decided to revolt against Assyria. And the Assyrians returned under a different king this time, but, but returned and, and laid siege to Jerusalem. And, and it was only by the mighty, miraculous intervention of the angel of the Lord that, who, who put to death 185,000 Assyrian soldiers that they withdrew and the city was spared, at least for the time being. Jerusalem itself didn't fall in 701, but smaller towns and cities in southern Judah around Jerusalem, they felt the full fury of the Assyrians coming into the nation. So, so the judgment which Micah foretold not only came to pass, but, but much of it happened in his lifetime and during his ministry. So it wasn't like something that was generations down the road. It happened during his ministry. And, and even though Jerusalem didn't fall at that point, the rest of what Micah foretold did take place a century or so later at the hands of the Babylonians. So, so that's the context. That's the setting for, for all that Micah says. But, but let's step back from that a little bit and start thinking about spiritual implications for the book as a whole. Because Micah's messages contain no call to repent of sin and so avoid judgment, we might wonder, what's the point? God, why are you giving these messages to Micah? If judgment is certainly coming and it can't be avoided, then, then why bother? I mean, there's no hope, right? It's been set, a serious coming. There, there, there must not be any hope. Well, well, even though judgment was certain to come, Micah still ended every oracle, every message, with a statement of hope. 
Not hope that judgment wouldn't come, but rather hope that the judgment which will come won't thwart God's purposes for his people. In essence, even though Assyria is coming and they're going to attack and they're going to be victorious, God will not be defeated. And so and one of the other themes that we'll talk about in the book of Micah is God's chosen remnant. In the midst of, of the judgment which he brings, Micah foretells how God will preserve a remnant through which he will continue to fulfill his promises made long ago. Even though the entire nation of people deserved to be wiped out, God will show mercy and, and bring a remnant through that judgment. Had nothing to do with the holiness of the people, had nothing to do with the obedience of the people. It was only by the grace and mercy of God that he would bring anyone through that judgment. Now, the more we dive into the specific reasons God brought judgment, as we look at these themes in the coming weeks, we, we may wonder, why spare any of them? I mean, why? Why not just wipe everyone out and start over again? The people have clearly rebelled against God, rejected him, not just one time, but over and over and over again. How can God love a people who so consistently turn away from him and turn toward idols and other false gods? Well, I've titled the sermon series, and I've titled today's sermon, Who is Like God? Who is Like God? Turn with me to the very end of Micah, chapter 7, verse 18. Micah has, has proclaimed his three oracles, with which had statements of both judgment and hope. And then at the end, chapter 7, verse 18, we read these words. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. So, so as the book wraps up, God's people are overtly urged to look upon and ponder God's character. Micah asks, who, who is a God like you? Who is like God? And of course, the answer to that is no one. There, there's, there's no one like God. There's no other God like the God of the Israelites, which is whom he was speaking to. No other God has the strength to bring just judgment upon sin and, to, and has the steadfast love to provide forgiveness and compassion for those who had sinned. There's no other God that can do that. But it's not just, it's not just the end of the book that brings that question to light. Turn, turn back with me to chapter 1, verse 1. The question that is posed at the end is also posed at the beginning. So verse 1 again, chapter 1, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Aaron, what are you talking about? All I see in this first verse is names of people and names of places. There's no question here. True. But do you know what the name Micah means in Hebrew? 
You can maybe guess, right? <laughs> Who is like God? That's what, that's what Micah's name means. So the book essentially begins and ends with that question. Who is like God? And so as a result, if we read through the book, or if we read any part of the book, and we fail to answer or, or at least ponder that question, then, then we've missed it. We've missed the point. Micah is written so that we would ask that question, but also have it revealed to us, who is like God? Who is like our God? So when we spend next Sunday morning talking about the seriousness of idolatry, which is one of the themes, we, we must ask, who is like God? When we spend a Sunday morning talking about God judging justly, we must ask, who is like God? When we spend a Sunday morning talking about the failures of the leaders, we must ask, who is like God? When we talk about, uh, about caring for the poor and the oppressed, we must ask, who is like God? When we talk about God's chosen remnant, we must ask, who is like God? That's our question for the next six weeks. Who is like God? What we should know this morning is that that question, it's not just reserved for God's people then. It's not just a question for when the Assyrians are surrounding God's people. God's people throughout the centuries ought to be rightly asking that question, whether facing times of judgment or times of hope and rejoicing. And so when you look through the Bible, I mean, Moses is a great example of this. In, in Exodus chapter 15, Moses sang a song in response to uh, the mighty power of God, the power that had been shown through the ten plagues, the power that had been shown through the Red Sea parting. During his song, he asks the question, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Moses is rejoicing at what God has done, and it leads him to say, God, who is like you? And then also in Deuteronomy chapter 3, Moses is reflecting on something else. He's reflecting there on his own disobedience. The time when God told him to speak to a rock so that water would come out and Moses instead struck the rock with his staff. He was reflecting on his disobedience and as a result, God told Moses, you're not going into the promised land. That, that, that was the consequences for Moses' disobedience. And he was reflecting on that in Deuteronomy chapter 3 and he said, what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? So, in both times of judgment and times of rejoicing, Moses was asking, who is like God? And the question is, do you and I do the same? Do we ask that question in both circumstances? From my own experience, I'm much more likely to ask that question when I'm rejoicing. When God works in such a way, or he provides in such a way, or protects in such a way that, that I appreciate and I enjoy, I, and, and maybe you too, are much quicker to say, oh, who's like our God? He's awesome. Who's like him? We're quick to note his power and authority and majesty far above anything or anyone else in the universe. But what about when I'm facing hardship? or discipline, or, or suffering? Am I as quick to ponder and proclaim, 
God's power and authority and majesty then. I mean, I, do, I know during those times, I, I find it more difficult to do that same thing. But, but, but it's not because God is any less himself. It's not because God is less worthy to be praised. It, it's just because I don't enjoy those times as much. It's a humbling thing to come before God and praise him no matter the season of life. It's humbling to come before God and say, God, there's no one like you in all seasons. And yet the words of Micah and his messages, they remind us that it's right to praise God no matter what. Now, when we think about the context of the book of Micah, there is a distinct difference between God's people in Micah's day and God's people today. And, and we have to talk about the difference because that difference is Jesus. We live under a new covenant instituted by Jesus' blood, whereby our sins have been forgiven. So, so the steadfast love, the, the pardoning of iniquity seen in part through the remnant in the book of Micah has now been shown to all who call on the name of Jesus. We are completely and eternally forgiven through Jesus' death on the cross. But the world in which we live is, is still fallen. And in addition to that, we have not yet been fully sanctified and glorified, and so we still deal with some of the earthly consequences of our sins, right? Difficulty remains. And this life can be quite difficult. We can go throughout our days and, and months and years and, and find that our soul feels weary. But the refreshment and, and the rejuvenation and renewal that we need is, is found, and it's only found in our God. So, so in the ups and the downs, the, the trials and the joys, when, when God disciplines and blesses, may we ponder the question, who is like our God? And may our pondering then lead us to proclaim boldly and confidently to whoever will hear us, no one, no one is like our God. No one is like our God at all times. He alone is great and worthy to be praised. That's what we got to keep in mind as we're going through this book of Micah, looking at some of the more specific themes in the coming weeks. Who is like God? No one. He is great. He is worthy to be praised all the time. Would you stand with me? We'll have, we'll have opportunity to continue to proclaim that this morning as we, as we come to God and worship through song one more time. Father, we, we're here this morning, and that's such a good question for us to think about. Who is like you? And God, as, as, as we go through this book, would you... Would you open our minds? Would you open our hearts to who you are? God, may we, may we understand what you were saying to your people then, and by extension then hear what you're saying to us now. 
God, I, probably all of us are, are much quicker to praise you in, in, in those good, joyful times, those times that we appreciate. And it's true, we should. We should proclaim that there's none like you in those times. But uh, that's true every moment. God, even, even in times where we are struggling with our old flesh, even in, in times where we're facing discipline of different kinds, times where there's just, just suffering due to living in this fallen world, may we still, still be proclaiming that no one is like you. Would you help us to do that? And so, God, we ask that you would continue revealing yourself to us. We, we want to intellectually learn more of who you are but we want to draw closer to you relationally as well. And I pray that that would be the outcome, even more than our knowledge, that, that we would grow in our relationship with you in these coming weeks. Thank you for people like Micah willing to deliver these difficult messages that you gave to them. So God, as we come to you now, as we proclaim through song who you are, how great you are, that there's none like you. Would you receive our worship? Would you be glorified through it? We pray it in your name. Amen.